open up to Matthew chapter 23. And we do have an announcement. Some of you already know this announcement, but I might as well make this announcement. Is that Bob Webb and Lee Bartlett are engaged. Can you believe this? What's going on here? Yeah, wow. I'd say wow too. Who are you saying wow for? Huh? Say wow for Bob. I mean... You're going to go on a honeymoon? You better. They need a chaperone. <laughs> well, congratulations on that. And if uh, Lee doesn't back out, Bob, we hope you have a happy <laughs> If she does back out, we expect to see you sitting at a table over there. <laughs> And we also want to remind those of you who are new to the class or have come back, we've started a little process where uh, each month we ask that you bring a, a canned good, actually each week, theoretically, bring a canned good, and we put it in our pantry back there, and we distribute this food to those that our class is ministering to that are not as well off as many of us. And some of you know Sandy Keaton, she works, uh, does evangelism, uh, in East Dallas, in an apartment complex in East Dallas, and every month she takes boxes of our food that we've given to help some of those families. So if you're new to the class, just start bringing in a can of food every week, and uh, we also have been giving a dollar a week that fills up our benevolence fund for the same purpose. So we'll be talking more about that in the future. But anyway, today we are in Matthew chapter 23, and we're going to start at verse 13. And we're going to go down probably to verse 28. Okay, that'll be Matthew 13, or 23, verses 13 through 28. And today we're going to examine the most severe words that ever fell from the lips of Jesus. Okay. This is the woe section of Matthew's Gospel. And Jesus has said woe a couple of times in Matthew's Gospel, but this time he's going to say it eight times in a row. Okay. We're going to cover the first seven woes today. The last woe we're going to cover next week because it's sort of a transition uh, verse, and you'll see how all that fits together. Uh, the Greek scholar A.T. Robertson called this passage the thunderbolt of wrath because he couldn't believe how, how much judgment Jesus preached upon a group of people that of which he was speaking. So we have these woes, and you find these woes in verse 13. If you look at that, you'll see, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. You see that? And then look at verse 14. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Some translations leave that particular verse out for various reasons, which we won't get into. Verse uh, 15, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Look down at verse 16. Woe to you, blind guides. Look over at verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Verse 24, 5. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. And, and after each one of those, he says, hypocrites. Verse 28. Well, was there 27 there? Where is that? Okay, 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. That's good. Uh, yeah, it wasn't 28. It was 27. And then 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. So each one of these woes is addressed to the same group, scribes and Pharisees. We described who they were last week. We won't get into that again. And he identifies the scribes and the Pharisees as hypocrites, which means they say one thing and they do something else. 
Okay, they are hypocritical. There in the Old Testament, there's sort of a counterpart to Matthew 23, and it's found in Isaiah 5. You don't need to turn there, but in Isaiah 5, uh, the prophet Isaiah says, Woe to you! And he speaks to the group of religious leaders in Israel. And the most famous woe in Isaiah, 25, uh, Isaiah 5 is, Woe to you who call good evil and evil good. You've heard that verse before, haven't you? So Jesus takes, uh, is giving what we call prophetic judgments. He takes the role of a prophet when he does this. So as we begin reading in verse 13, I want you to remember one thing. That Luke is writing his book about 50 years later than the events take place. The events take place in 30 A.D. during the life of Jesus. Luke's not an eyewitness to these events, and he doesn't write them down when they're happening. He's not writing about these events until about 50 years later. And this gospel is going to be read by church members up in Syria, somewhere around 80, 85 AD. And so he's not just giving them a history lesson. Hey, let me tell you the time Jesus pronounced woes on Pharisees. He's telling them this story for a purpose. He wants them to apply to their lives and make sure they're not hypocrites saying one thing and doing another. Just as these Pharisees were the protectors of God's law and God's word for their age, so now the church has the same responsibility. And it's a word for us as well, 2,000 years later. So let's take heed when we read this particular series of woes. So let's look at verse 13, and let's see if we can identify how they're hypocrites, okay? <clears throat> Look at verse 13. Woe number one. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. Now these are the people that should be opening up the kingdom of God to people. They have the authority. They represent God's, sort of, they claim to represent God's voice on earth. They claim that they are the ones who interpret God's word for the people. They hold the keys of the kingdom, they claim. But instead of using those keys to open the doors of the kingdom, what do they do? Lock the doors of the kingdom to the people. So that's how they are hypocrites. They should be opening the doors, but what are they doing? They're locking the doors to the people. They're locking the people out. Now, let's make this application. How about us? Do we hold the keys to the kingdom? Did Jesus say to Peter and the others, I give you the keys to the kingdom? Do we have the gospel? Has that gospel message been passed on to us? Do we have the keys to, the, to eternal life for people? Are we using those to open the doors? Or do we keep our mouths shut? If we keep our mouths shut, the people are shut out of the kingdom of God. We have the keys. Are we using them? Are we saying we're Christians? But we really aren't proclaiming the gospel? See, that's the important thing, that we need to not look at the Pharisees as much as we need to look at ourselves. So look at the results, he says in verse 13. For you neither go in yourself. Look at that. You're actually locking yourself out as well. You neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. <clears throat> These, they're people that are even seeking eternal life. And guess what they're doing? They're hindering even those people that are seeking eternal life from getting it. 
And that's what we do. We, many times, hinder and prevent people who want to get into the kingdom of God from doing so. We can do it by the sin of omission, by being passive and not proclaiming the gospel, or we can do it by a sin of commission and be active in causing people not to get in. And you say, well, how would you do that? Maybe they're looking at your life. And they're saying, if that's what a Christian looks like, if that's what eternal looks like, I don't want it. So, we are hindering many times people from getting in. So that's woe number one. Now let's look at woe number two. Verse 14. We'll try to go through these fairly quickly because Jesus spoke them in a series and he didn't spend a lot of time expounding on each one of those. Okay, look at verse 14. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Why is he calling that? Because you devour widows' houses. These are the people that should be helping widows, but guess what they do? They confiscate from widows. They devour. When, when the locust comes in and devours a field, what's left? Nothing. So, Israel was charged with making sure that its widows and its orphans were cared for. By the way, we're charged with that in this class, by the way. And if we don't, and all we do is take. Say, make sure you give Fred money to support the president's class, you widows. Come on, make sure. And we don't give anything to the widows, then guess what we're doing? We're no better than the Pharisees. That's why they're hypocrites. They should be helping, but instead they are hurting. So supplying resources, they are withdrawing resources from the widows. They're stripping them of their resources. How do they do that? Look in verse 14. And for a pretense... Notice that word pretense. Make long prayers. They do it under the guise of religiosity. Piety. Uh, they use prayers to strip the widows of what they have. Sounds like a televangelist, doesn't it? Speak out all those people. Here there's widows getting their little social security. Send us your money. Plant a seed. You know? Uh, we'll pray for you. Here's a prayer cloth. Send us your money. You know, blessing pack or whatever they want to call this. And that's what they do. And so instead of praying for the widows, they do it. They say, we're going to pray for you. P-R-A-Y, but that's what they're doing. They're praying on them. That's why they're hypocrites. What did James say? This is pure religion. That you take care of the widows and the orphans. <clears throat> That is true Christianity. Everything else can be just a profession. Therefore, he says at the end of verse 14, look at the result. You will receive greater condemnation. Greater than what? Greater than other people. <coughs> so here we see there is, there are degrees of judgment. There's a greater condemnation and there's a lesser condemnation. So, here we see that's the second woe. Now look at woe number three. Still with me? Look at verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to make one proselyte. Uh, this is what I would call misguided zeal. Uh, they would try to convert Gentiles to Judaism. That's what a proselyte is. You would try to convert a Gentile to become a Jew. 
And then it wasn't enough that the Gentile, who was a, maybe a Roman citizen or just living in the Roman Empire, believing in the pantheon of gods, hundreds and thousands of Roman gods, would convert and say, I believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They said, that's not enough. Now you need to be circumcised. And they were very zealous in trying to convert people to Judaism, especially Gentiles, but they weren't converting them to God. They were converting them to Judaism. And instead of trusting in God for eternal life, they were trusting in the fact that they were now circumcised, they were keeping the law and all these kinds of things, and they would assure them of salvation, which, of course, the person didn't have. And it says in the middle of verse 15, and when that person is one, in other words, when you convince him to do that, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Uh, Doubly lost. Twice twice lost. They were lost once when they were just good old-fashioned pagans, but guess now, guess what now? Now they've become Jews. They've been circumcised and trusted in the wrong thing. They're twice lost. You're in worse shape when you give somebody false assurance, or they're in worse shape, than if they had no assurance at all. And a lot of times we'll do that. We'll say, just pray the Spirit. Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Come into my heart. Save me, save me, save me. And then guess what? You're saved. We proclaim them saved. And then guess what? no evidence of any salvation whatsoever. See? So, in a sense, they're doubly lost. They were lost before, but now it's worse because they, they think they're saved. And you end up doing more harm than good. You've been better off leaving them alone. And then look at verse 16. We have the next woe. This would be woe number four. Woe to you blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he's obliged to perform it. Fools and blind. For which is greater, the gold of the temple or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And whosoever, and this is what else you say, whosoever swears by the altar, that's nothing. But whosoever swears by the gift that is on it, he's obliged to to perform it. Now what in the world's going on here? This deals with oaths. And the Pharisees were very careful not to use God's name in an oath. They wouldn't say, so help me God. So they would substitute another word for God's name, like like we say, on a stack of Bibles, I swear. We don't say you know, God's name, we just say on a stack of Bibles. That means basically the same thing. We're just using the word Bible as a substitute. So they would say, well, you can swear on the temple, but if you swear on the temple, that's not really a binding oath. That doesn't count. But if you swear on the gold of the temple, now we know you're serious. And there was the other one. If you swear on the what? The altar. Yeah. If you swear on the, the altar, now that, that's something. If you swear on the altar, that's not good enough, but now if you swear on the gift that you put on that altar, now we know you mean business. So what they did is they divided these oaths into two, two categories. The oaths that are binding and the oaths that are not binding. Which ones are not binding? The one when you say, I swear by the temple or I swear by the altar. Non-binding. Which ones are binding? I swear by the gold. And I swear by the gift. Binding. 
So Jesus says, calls them blind guides there. And look what he says in verse 19. Fools and blind. For which is greater? He said, let me ask you a question. Which is greater? The gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? And the answer is the altar that sanctifies the gift. So here these guys have it all backwards. They're saying that the gift is what binds it. He's like, really, the altar is more important than the gift, just the gift. Without an altar, guess what? You couldn't even bring a sacrifice. You have to have that brazen altar. That's really important. So they don't see it. That's why he calls them blind guides. They don't see what is more important. They claim to be wise, and they're wise in their own mind, but they're stupid as spit when it comes to reality. You ever meet somebody like that? I've met a few professors like that in my life. Not at Criswell. I do want you to know that. But you know, you have to be very careful when you're real dogmatic like that. And there they were very dogmatic about these oaths. Now look what he says in verse 20. Therefore, he who swears by the altar, that's what they said was not binding. He who swears by the altar swears by it and all the things on it. Every oath is binding. Doesn't matter whether it's the gift that you're praying for or you're swearing by or the altar that you're swearing by. Okay, look at verse 21. He who swears by the temple, which the Pharisee said wasn't binding, swears by it and he who dwells in it. Because God dwells in the temple. That's a binding oath. Look at verse 22. He who swears by heaven swears by the throne of heaven and by him who sits on it. If you say, I swear by the throne of God, hey, that's binding because God sits on the throne. In other words, all oaths are binding. All oaths are binding. These guys are hypocrites. They say, you can take an oath, but it's not binding. Hey, what Jesus said. All oaths are binding. In fact, you don't have to swear by anything. Gift, altar, temple. He said, let your yay be what? Yea, and your nay be nay, and don't take an oath. Why would you have to take an oath if you're an honest person? Shouldn't your word be your bond? See, we've dealt with that before in Matthew. So, these guys are requiring oaths because they're hypocrites. Because you can't even count on their word being their bond. So what they require from others is oaths. Now look at the fifth woe. Down in verse 23. Woe to you scribes and Pharisees. Oh, this is a great one. For you pay tithe of mint and anise, some translations say dill, and cumin. So this deals with tithing. They are hypocrites because they pay tithe on these spices. That's not the only reason you're going to see this. In Palestine, it was a very agrarian society, and so people would, who were farmers would pay their tithes in produce. So they would take one-tenth of their crops, that's what a tithe means, and they would bring those that produce, or the monetary equivalent of a sale, and they would bring it to the temple, to the temple storehouse. And those tithes, whether it was money or produce, were used to take care of the Levites and the priests who owned no land. That's how the priests were cared for. Well, 
these Pharisees not only tithe on their crops, they tithe on their spices. Even dill. Even a, even a mint leaf. Boy, they are really tithers, aren't they? They tithe right down to the penny. But, look what it says in verse 23. You tithe all those things, but you have neglected the weightier matters of the law. And here's what they are. Justice, mercy, and faith. You can tithe on your dill and your mint, but guess what you forget to do? You don't fulfill the weightier matters of the law. And those weightier matters are justice. You don't, you're not fair with people. You cheat people. We're going to see later they take bribes from people. They're not fair. Uh, they don't show mercy, it says in verse 23. They don't, you know, God required that Israel as a covenant people were to be compassionate toward others that were in the covenant, that were God's people. They don't show mercy toward people. They didn't show mercy toward the widow, did they? You think they show mercy toward the beggar on the street? You think they show mercy toward the leper? You think they show mercy toward the people who are on the margins and have need? They just said sinners. What was their criticism of Jesus? He eats with tax collectors and what? Sinners. We don't have anything to do with those people. Hey, well, you should because you need to show compassion and mercy. That's weightier than paying your tithe. And then he says faith in verse 23. That's a weightier matter. That means trusting God. They didn't have to trust God because they trusted their own ingenuity. They knew how to manipulate and work the system. And when you do that, you can just trust yourself. If God didn't exist, you could survive. And so, Jesus says, you're a hypocrite because you tithe even on your dill supply in your cupboard. But on the weightier matters of the law, you neglect those things. You're derelict on those things. Now, he doesn't say that they shouldn't tithe. He just says tithing is less significant than the weightier matters. Tithing is less significant than the weightier matters. So, I might say they majored on the minors. You ever meet people that major on the minors? They neglect their important duties. So look at the instructions that Jesus gives right at the end of verse 23. These you ought to have done. In other words, you should have tithed. Nothing wrong with that. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. You should tithe, number one, but don't start you know, shining your star because you tithe. You should do it. Yes, give God a tenth. Don't brag about it. It's not that big of a deal. Any idiot can do that. Any idiot can take a dime and say, and from that dime, I'm going to put one penny aside. Anybody can do that. That doesn't take much. That's not as significant as showing compassion, being just, see, trusting God. These are the weightier matters. We need to do both. Now he gives an illustration that illustrates that point. Versus significant and less significant. Blind the guides. Well, how many times has he said that? He's called them blind back in verse 17, fools and blind. Called them blind in verse 19, fools and blind. And now he calls them blind Pharisees 
uh, blind again in verse 24. Blind guides. They're blind. That's what a Pharisee is. Pharisee sees the fault in other people. Pharisee majors on minors, doesn't deal with the significant things. Blind guides. Now, look, you know what a guide is. You know, if you were going to go on a safari, you wouldn't want a blind guide to lead you, would you? That person doesn't know where he's going. He can't see where he's going himself. If he can't see where he's going himself, how in the world is he going to guide you? In fact, he'll probably guide you to danger if he's blind. Onto something like as serious as a safari. So he calls them blind guides because, see, they're, they're dispensing wisdom to all these other people. Blind guides, verse 24, look at this, who strain at the net and swallow the camel. Strain at the net and swallow the camel. How blind are they? Well, they're very nearsighted, that much I know. Okay? Because if a, if a gnat gets into their glass of wine, boy, they can spot that thing real quick. Get that thing uh, so what do they do? They strain their wine so that the gnat's caught in the net. They get that gnat out of there. That real little teeny gnat. They certainly don't want it to die, because if the net dies, then something's dead in their cup, and they'll be unclean for about a week. So they don't want the net in there. Okay. Uh, it would be like a fly getting in our iced tea. Get flies landing on your iced tea, you go like this. Get them away. You don't want them to, you know, do the backstroke. You know. But you know something, a fly, it doesn't drive you crazy. Not a single fly. <laughs> Some people it does. But what, it would be like, you know, get away, get away, get away. Shouldn't have. But then here comes a bird, and he sees your ice tea and says, oh, a bird bath. And he lands in your ice tea and starts doing, washing himself, in the, thinking you're a glass ice tea is a bird bath. And you sort of say, oh, that's not so bad. With him in there. Now, you know that would be a little crazy, right? Well, Jesus is giving a crazy illustration. He says, you're concerned about being significant, like tithing, compared to the bigger matters, like a camel. You swallow a camel, but you wouldn't swallow like that. You'd straighten that out. Now, in the Aramaic language in which Jesus is speaking here, there's a play on words because the word gnat is galma, and the word for camel is gamla. It's just a switch of the M and the L. So it's a sound play in the Aramaic language, and so he's grabbing their attention with this cute illustration that drives home the point. Now look at woe number six. Verse 25. Woe to you, scribe and Pharisees, hypocrites. Now why are they hypocrites? Here's why. For you cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. <coughs> now he's not talking about literal cups here. He's not talking about literal cups because if you read it, it doesn't make, wouldn't make sense in verse 25. You cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they're full of extortion and self 
indulgence. So he's not talking about a literal cup any more than he's talking about a literal gnat and a literal camel. When he was talking about a gnat and a camel, he was talking about insignificant laws and significant laws. The weightier matters of the law. And he's not talking about a cup here. He's talking about the human heart. He's talking about you. And he's talking about the Pharisees who are more concerned. This is sort of a metaphor. It's more concerned on how they look outside. Remember last week we saw how they wore their long robes and they wanted to make sure everyone recognized them. As long as they looked good on the outside, uh, they weren't concerned about the sin on the inside. And what is the sin that he describes? Extortion. Like blackmail. Bribery. Extortion. Self-indulgence. These are things that can be hidden from you. See? These are things that... Uh, are done in secret. So people look at you and say, oh, there's a holy man. But boy, if they could only see your heart. If they could only see what goes on behind the scenes. That's why these people are hypocrites. Because they have a double standard. One for you and one for them. And then look at verse 26. You see it again. Blind. How many times is that? Four. Blind Pharisee. First. And this is an order. First. Cleanse the inside of the cup and the dish. I'm not talking about literal cups, remember? So that the outside of them may be clean also. Uh, basically, you need to work from the inside out, you know, the forgiveness, and then work from the inside. There needs to be a cleansing from the inside out. It's not enough just to ritually clean your hands. You need to clean your heart. It wasn't enough to do all the ritual things that the Jews did. That didn't forgive sins. You had to be cleansed inside and out. So that gives that instruction. These guys are very good at seeing the splinter in someone else's eye, but missing the log in their own eye. That's sort of like straining in a gnat and swallowing a camel. Splinter versus log, gnat versus camel. So you can see how they're making these hypocritical decisions and lead this hypocritical life. And then the seventh woe is found in verse 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And here's the reason. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outside, but inside are full of dead man's bones and all uncleanness. Uh, this is a simile. What are they like? They are like, he's comparing them to whitewashed tombs that on the outside look pretty nice, but on the inside all there is is decaying bodies. There's corruption on the inside. So while the outside is clean, whitewashed, the inside is dark and dirty. Again, we're dealing with a, a similar situation as he said before. Now, what the Jews would do is in springtime they would whitewash their tombs because they wanted to be pleasant for the eye when they were passerbys. And it sort of made look, things look pretty good. You know, there's a whitewashed tomb. But everybody knew that no matter how good it looked on the outside, don't get too close to that tomb or you'll become unclean, according to Jewish law, and you will have to 
make a sacrifice. So we do the same thing with our cemeteries, don't we? Go to a cemetery and the lawn's cut and the tombstones are nice and there are gardens and there are flowers and you know on holidays there are different decorations. And we go by and it's pleasant to the eye. Oh, there's there's that cemetery. We don't want to have a cemetery where there are weeds growing up and tombstones are knocked over and you know. We wouldn't want something that looks like that because that would remind us of really what a cemetery is all about. It's about death and it's about decay. So uh, we want it just the opposite. So what we do is we sanitize the cemetery. See, but that's not what it's really like. Now, it's the same with the Pharisees. They look good, sanitized from the outside, but that's not how they really are. They're like whitewashed tombs. I don't know if I've ever read the, more than the first page or two of Tom Sawyer or one of the Huck Finn, but I remember that they're whitewashing the fence, probably on page one, because I never read a book in my life until I went to college. So they were whitewashing a fence. So what do you do when you whitewash a fence? In the spring they would whitewash this fence, and it looked pretty good. I mean, it wasn't good paint or anything, but it looked pretty good. But oftentimes what it did is it hid the rotten wood beneath. So to the passerby it looked good, but in reality, it was rotten. See? So what he's describing here is how deceptive the Pharisees are. This is why they're hypocrites. They're always engaged in a cover-up. <coughs> we see this in politics all the time. It doesn't, wasn't just Nixon and Watergate. It's every president hides things, and politicians hide things. They don't want you to pull back the, the curtains and see them for what they really are. The deals that are going on in the smoke-filled back rooms. And they come to your Christian organization in your church, and they talk about God and country, and you go, ah! Where were they last night? Don't be so foolish. Jesus is able to spot a phony immediately, and we too have been given discernment to do that. Don't be deceived. And so we come to this conclusion, verse 28. Even so you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Your righteousness is nothing more than a thin veneer. It's not a righteousness at all. Just like you've got hardwood floors, some of you have real hardwood floors, and then many of us have plastic with a little veneer of wood on the top of the hardwood floor, and it looks like you have hardwood floors, but you don't have hardwood floors. Now, you're not trying to deceive anybody. It's just that your pocketbook might not have been able to afford you know, $10 for a square foot of wood. But in this case, the veneer is a veneer of righteousness. It just covers up the corruption. And they don't want you to see the corruption, so they outwardly look righteous, but inwardly, once you get below the surface, they are corrupt. And that's why they are Pharisees. That's why they are hypocrites. 
Next week we'll pick up at verse 29. Okay? Now what I want to do is I want to give you the seven principles that I've been able to glean from these seven woes that we have talked about today. And I'm going to try to make them positive principles that we should abide by. Number one, we should always be opening the door to the kingdom and not hindering people from the kingdom. That means we need to understand what the true gospel is. The nature of the gospel will be able to explain it. Uh, that would be based on woe number one. Okay, number two, we should serve widows and the unfortunate. We should be a blessing to those people. This is what Christians do. Be a blessing to those that are unfortunate. Number three, make sure your zeal is based on knowledge. You know, uh, it's really important that you know the gospel. Don't be like the Pharisees who make people twice the child of hell as themselves by giving them the wrong message, you need to be circumcised. And then having them trust that for their salvation. Don't invite people to the church and make them assume that because now they're coming to church, they're Christians. You know? You're not a Christian because you come to church. And a lot of people, if they don't hear the gospel clearly, they'll get the wrong idea. You're no more a Christian because you go to church than you are a hamburger because you go to McDonald's, right? So we need to make sure that we preach this correct message and that our zeal includes knowledge. And then next, you need to make sure that you're, you keep your word, that you're an honest person, that you don't have to swear by anything, okay? that you yay be, yay, be a person of your word. Next, give attention to the weightier aspects of the law. Ethics count. Profession counts little. Ethics count a lot. We are to be people of justice, people of compassion and mercy, people of faith. Sixth, check your attitude and make sure your inner life matches your outer life. And then finally, your life should be transparent. So when people see you, they see you for as, as you really are. They should be able to look into your eyes and get a glimpse into your soul. Don't hide sins. Don't be like the scribes and the Pharisees. <coughs> One thing Jesus hated. He hated hypocrites. Never in the scriptures do you see him pronouncing judgment on any other people than those that are hypocrites. All the rest, all the rest of the lost, he had such a compassion for. Them. In fact, he says down in verse 37, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I would have loved to just gathered you as a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you wouldn't do it. And the reason that the people wouldn't come to Jesus is because the Pharisees were preventing them from entering the kingdom of God. We need to make sure that we live lives that are transparent. Lord, we thank you for a, a passage of scripture that touches our own lives. If Jesus came into this room and looked into my heart and all of our hearts, would he say, Blessed are thou, for you are meek? Or would he say, Woe to you, scribe 
you Pharisee. Oh Lord, help us to examine our own lives and help us to realize that we need to be transparent. We need to be people who are forgiven and sold out to you, people who are loving and compassionate. Help us to take these words to heart and put them into action. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you.